All right, so this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we have already read it, but I want to establish for us uh, somewhat of an introduction to it, and we have entitled this sermon, uh, The Spiritual Gifts, The Spiritual Gifts, and most of the verses in this particular context, in this chapter as well, deals with uh, first the spiritual gifts, uh, why they're necessary, and then it deals with what those spiritual gifts are, and then how those gifts ought to operate within the body. So Paul, as this chapter closes, you'll find he also provides a certain caution uh, related to if the gifts are not functioning properly, what is then the consequence for the body of Christ? So in this context, uh, the spiritual gifts are very much in view. And I believe that certainly uh, every time we've come across somewhat of a new section, it's because Paul is aiming to correct something that has once been Proclaimed, and then it has been in some ways misused or abused by the people or even misunderstood. So Paul's purpose here was to establish the reason in this very first context, the reason spiritual gifts were practiced in the church. That's the first thing he sets out to accomplish as we begin verse one, the reason that spiritual gifts were to be practiced in the church. So Paul assumes that the spiritual gifts ought to be practiced and assumes that those gifts function in the life of the church. Now, what then you and I have to do is look at in what manner are those gifts operational and how do they function concerning our time in the modern church? Because not all the gifts are necessarily imported to our modern context. And and we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that as we look at the gifts a little more closely. He identified some of the gifts, some of the gifts, to make his point that the gifts were exercised for the building up of the body. And so Paul at each point, still dealing with the central theme of Corinthians, which I believe is unity, would be the central theme of Corinthians in light of the division that was established by the factions. I believe that what Paul is really after is the building up of the body in the face of this this faction that exists. And this faction... Uh, these factions that must exist. And there are a couple of them that we have talked about throughout our time in Corinthians. But he wants the spiritual gifts to be something that is evident in the life of the church, not simply to build up the body, but to fight and contend against uh, this fraction and and, uh, disfigured sense in which the body is operating there in Corinth. He also wants the gifts to be used beyond as a measure of building up the body, more specifically as a means to minister to one another within the life of the church. So the gifts are there to minister to one another within the life of the church. So then here, as with other places, as with the Lord's Supper, as with uh, the imitation of Christ related to walking in humility, related to the head coverings that we discussed in the chapters, uh, in the chapter prior to this one, we look at those issues within their historical context, and that's how we first must look at every issue uh, as they're raised, as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, that there is a historical precedent. There is a historical context that you and I must consider. And I say that because, as I've said before, we cannot simply import modern practices of a particular thing that is said without first seeking to follow the flow of this letter. So as we look at this letter, we have to understand what Paul is saying, why he's saying it, and who is his primary audience that he's speaking to before applying what is said to ourselves. And then 
in light of what is then said, we have to understand what God has called the modern church to do in light of what had been done in the Corinthian church in the past. We have to acknowledge the linear sense of history and of God's working in his church, meaning that there is indeed from uh, the temporal standpoint a start. There is certainly a middle and there is definitely an end. So you and I cannot import anything that is said without realizing who is God's primary target for what is said and then how do we ought, uh, how ought we then to apply what is said. But also here we have a context. We have a very real context, one that you are now very familiar with because it came up in chapters one and three. It's the factions. The factions are certainly our context. So due to the factions, Paul's hope was to correct any errors with regard to practicing the gifts or identifying the gifts. Before it was marriage and uh, morality as related to intimacy and marriage. It was food sacrificed to idols. It was head coverings. It was all these things that Paul brought up because those areas were being overemphasized to the detriment of unity within the body of Christ. It's not that they weren't important matters. It's that those things were taking on a life of their own in such a way so as to establish factions around them and to practice them in a way that was not meant to edify and build one another up. And so Paul is dealing with the same situation related to the spiritual gifts. And I believe that is because of the effect of factions. That's what we see throughout Corinthians. That's why these correctives are necessary. That's why it's necessary to make corrections. Because we are still very much seeing the conflict in several areas. And the effect of factions as the sins within the factions cause confusion and irreverence among some in the church. So you see the, the effect. It's not only implied, but Paul brings it up. He brings up how these areas specifically have been challenged by people who are holding on to uh, a factious kind of thinking. And factions do cause confusion and irreverence. Even if people are pretending to be reverent, people are pretending to be religious, and even when people are pretending to be clear, they may still be because of sin related to factions and personality cultism and all the things that I believe plague the modern church. They may be confused. And they are confused. And they may build systems to double down on their confusion. And they are certainly irreverent, but they may appear to be reverent simply because they ascribe to ritualism. But here, Paul does not want people to just do things out of mindless habit. And so he wants them to understand why they're doing what they're doing in the life of the church, so that not only can they do it for the right reason, but then there would be blessing because they've done it for the right reasons. And they would chiefly be a blessing to one another. But let us understand this point. Paul wanted the believers there to understand the gifts clearly. Paul wanted believers there to understand the gifts clearly. There's a reaction. If you were to go out today and tell people we are learning in our church fellowship about the spiritual gifts. If I were telling people we are preaching and proclaiming about the spiritual gifts, their reaction is, oh, as though there's some confusion that ought not bring us near to this particular chapter. That is typically the reaction, and that is actually a true story. That those are the reactions that you might receive as you mention spiritual gifts. That people think that that's something we have to be silent about. 
or something we just have to, we'll just, you know, we'll just figure it out at some point. Uh, But Paul wanted the believers at Corinth to understand the gifts very clearly. He did not want people to come to this passage and, quote unquote, agree to disagree. He did not want that. Or for the church to be so, quote unquote, sophisticated that they would see spiritual gifts as a peripheral issue. That, you know, we're beyond arguments about spiritual gifts. Let's just lift our hands and sing. And, you know, we'll just if it comes up, we'll talk about it. But it's not really something we should be focused on, they would say. But instead, what I believe that Paul calls us to, because he's very explicit in that. What I believe Paul calls us to is this, that the Christian must commit his or herself to understanding, biblical understanding, especially in the area of the gifts, and sharpen the understanding by the study of God's word, especially related to the gifts. I'll tell you where I'm getting this from. But it is also to lean solely on the work of the spirit, specifically in the area of illumination. You understand these things not because I'm standing up here and being so clear. That certainly helps. You understand these things because you are studying God's word and he is illumining things in your heart. And therefore, when we come together and I speak in such a way, there ought to be agreement. There ought to be amen. That's true. And so that is the case with the spiritual gifts. And again, why am I saying that? Because Paul tries to arrive at the same point. Look at verse one. Look at what he says. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to go through your Christian walk and your Christian existence unaware, unfamiliar, misunderstanding what the spiritual gifts are, how they operate, and how they ought to function in the life of the church. Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And I believe that the connective that he uses in verse one is because they are unaware and he doesn't want them to persist in that present condition because he says now concerning. He's moving on to correcting it. I've I've dealt with the Lord's Supper and all the issues before, but now we're here at the spiritual gifts and I don't want you to be unaware with them. So I stand with Paul. I don't want you to be unaware. With reference to the spiritual gifts. I don't want you to go through the spiritual gifts and not know what they are and not know which ones are operative and which ones are not and not understand which ones are tied to apostolic watch and which uh, gifts function in the modern sense. I don't want you uh, to walk through this in a way that you're unaware. So then Paul says it that way, and I believe that that is a very important point. He does not say Concerning spiritual gifts, feel free to agree to disagree. He doesn't say that. He does not say concerning spiritual gifts, let's sort them into tiers of importance and relevance with the end result of a false humility that concludes none of us knows anything. He doesn't say that. He does not say let's propose all the views and you can land where you are comfortable. He says, I do not want you to be unaware. So that means there is an objective standard that we're given, an objective explanation, and an objective practice that must flow from that objectivity. Because, listen, there once was a time where they were unaware. There once was a time when you and I were unaware. And you know when that time was? It wasn't the time in which they're Christians. 
Look at verse 2. It was when they were pagans. If you're unaware of these things, it's because of paganism. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. So specifically when they were pagans, Paul said, they were led astray to mute idols, idols that cannot speak and cannot operate on behalf of the people who worship those idols. Since there are many paths to destruction, Paul prefaced this entire thought with, however you were led. Because there's one way to the one true God, but there's many ways to be destroyed by idols. So he says, you were led there, however you arrived there, that's where you were going. But that was the time in which you were unaware of God's operations in the life of the church. When you were pagans, when you were idolaters. So it makes you think, why today is it such a measure of holiness to not be clear on both how these things operate and their practice? When Paul says to take that posture is to be no different than the pagans. Because the pagans don't know where they're going. They don't know how they arrive there, but they're pretending they do. And they're pretending that somehow they're on some spiritual quest to honor God. That's how pagans think. But Paul said that not ought to be so in this case. So however you were led, this speaks to the fact that the Corinthians were led by someone or many in this direction of idolatry. And Paul's role is to pull them in and within their sanctification make things clear. But in this, you also see a great danger. You also see a great danger. The nature of their paganism was religious. The nature of their paganism was religious. Now, that's not always to say that it is religious, but there is always some worshipful element within paganism. And so Paul puts his finger, so to speak, directly on that. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. You were a very religious culture. You were a very philosophical culture. They were devoted Make no mistake in Corinthian society, they were devoted to worship and praise and gathering. They were devoted to worship and praise and gathering. And listen to this, based on what is said in verse 3, it is even possible that they included the name, quote-unquote, Jesus in the pantheon of false gods they worshipped, but not the real living Jesus Christ. So it is possible that they were using the name Jesus, but not in agreement with the true Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ. For we can see how Paul warned them about how they treated Christ, because they thought of themselves as worshiping God on some spiritual quest. Look at this. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. You can be sure that in some way, shape, or form that was being said. Because Paul wanted to tell them that that's not how the Spirit of God operates. But that was being said. And then he said, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is not just saying this hypothetically or theoretically. I believe he's addressing things 
that are actually being said and done amongst the Corinthians. And I believe that the inroads of this religious paganism was so strong that there were glimpses of it, especially in the area of the spiritual gifts. But I don't think that that's the only thing that was happening related to the spiritual gifts. There's so much more. Their, their, their paganism was certainly religious. But you see that what their paganism caused them to do was to abuse the gifts. It caused them to abuse the gifts. It caused them to assault God, the Holy Spirit, who gave them. So verse 3, as I've said, Paul is not speaking hypothetically. I believe that he's warning that this pagan practice, when they were led astray to mute idols... Idols who cannot speak, who could not bless, who could not save anybody. They were speaking recklessly and dangerously about Christ. And you see that. Sure, they were mentioning Christ, but it was a reckless mention of him. And why is that? Well, because idolatry in every form is indeed reckless. It is dangerous. But it also is the surest sign of self-destruction. And Paul was trying to move them away from self-destructive practice in the life of the church specifically that you can't just say things about Christ in a passing glance that are untrue or that bring dishonor to him and his work. And somehow we're okay with that. Somehow there's a pass. Whenever we bring up the name of Christ where he is indeed our King, he is indeed the uh, undisputed Head of the church. Whenever we bring his name up, it has to be according to truth because as so he is. And so here I believe that Paul is warning them very, very specifically about that. In this case, he provides an example of how this pagan form of religious idolatry manifested itself in Corinth in that church at that time. First, it was spoken. Now. Let's back up a little bit and really think about all that has been laid out before us. The incentive to for some to speak about Christ this way was the existence of the factions, because the factions were raised up against one another. To tear down a faction, you must tear down the faction head. If you remember, there was a faction that had for it the name Christ. I believe it's very closely related as to why this particular thing is said about Christ. But I also believe that the father behind the factions was Satan himself. Lowercase f. I believe that he is the one who drives the factions. Where are you getting that from? He's the author of confusion. He's the father of lies. He's a sower of discord. He's an accuser of the brethren. He even lives to accuse Christ. And his work. So you see this behind the scenes spiritual war that's raging. So much so that it's working itself out in the mouths of men. And also in their practice. And all of this is being called church. Has his method really changed? No. He still does those very same things. But here he sought the dishonoring of Christ through men in their flesh by uttering this phrase. 
by saying that Jesus is accursed. I'll be quite plain with you. It was hard to write that, and it is hard to say that. But they were saying it. And it is such a blasphemous, listen to me, it is such a blasphemous and wicked thing to say that Jesus is accursed. But one thing was for sure. One thing was for sure, and Paul wanted to make it plain, that where you hear that said or see people live as though that's true, The one who gave the church spiritual gifts would not place that in men's mouths and hearts to say. I believe it is impossible for born again believers to curse the living Christ. In word and deed. But what if a preacher slips up and says something blasphemous about Christ? It wasn't a slip up. It's not a slip up. One who is born from God's spirit will see to it that the only thing that flows from their mouth concerning Christ is honor, praise, glory, ascribing all things to him, worshiping him, and worshiping him alone. But be sure, the spirit's work is not to work through error. error. It's not to work through blasphemy. It's not to work through false teaching and somehow sanctify people through false teaching. It's not to work through cursing Christ in word or deed. And somehow on the other side of that, there's blessing because we're all emotionally stimulated. It's not how the spirit of God works. And so Paul says it certainly coming from God himself a lot better than I can say. it, And I mean that because he says it in this way. Therefore, I make known to you. It's almost like a declaration. I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. For one, the spirit's work is to take all the things that belong to Christ and reveal them to us. And also his work is to bring honor, glory and praise to Christ. He would never run counter to that. But then listen to this. I like how the stakes are raised a bit higher. He says in the second part of verse three, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is why I say Paul is not speaking hypothetically. He's not speaking hypothetically. If one is truly indwelled by God's spirit in regeneration, the new birth, as all who are born again are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. It is impossible for that person to curse Christ. It is impossible. Now, I suppose a person could curse Christ and prove that they were deceiving themselves and deceiving everyone about their own testimony. But it is impossible for a true, born-again, purchased and redeemed Christian to curse Christ. It is impossible. It is impossible for them to form the phrase itself. For the phrase to be in the heart to speak out of the mouth. It is impossible. They would never speak those words no matter what the circumstance. They would never curse Christ. But then again, I love the way Paul puts it because in the same way, O Corinthians, 
No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I believe what he's presenting to us is the foundation of the spiritual gifts. That all that is practiced related to the spiritual gifts and all that is understood related to the spiritual gifts begins with the mindset that truly believes Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Such a powerful phrase. As much as what was said before is such a blasphemous phrase, Jesus is Lord is such a powerful phrase. Now you may be saying, because as I came to this text, I certainly had questions. I, I don't anticipate or assume that they're yours, but you may be thinking, aren't there those who make a false profession and say the phrase Jesus is Lord? Well, I believe Paul gets to that next. I believe what he gets to is what separates that person from the one who truly believes are the actions, the actions. If you truly believe that Jesus is Lord, you will act as though Jesus is Lord, especially in the area of the spiritual gifts. You'll understand what they are. You'll understand what drives them. You'll understand their reason and purpose for existence. You'll practice the ones that ought to be practiced in a way that brings honor to Christ and honor to one another. The actions hold up the confession. Or the actions will show you that the confession is superficial and spurious. Here, if you look at verse 2, back up to the, to the pagan, Jesus was one of many. Because a person who says what they said, leading into what is said in verse 3, no one by the Spirit of God said Jesus is a curse. To even think that is to just think Jesus is one of many. Because the phrase assumes his existence, but it also assumes that, well, he's just, he's a common thing. Now, whether self is elevated above him or some other idolatrous uh, idea or person. But the man who thinks, or let me say it this way. He was not first. He was not considered among the pagans as the only way, the truth and the life. What testified to this is that the pagans did not live as though that were true. So the confession and the life will agree. If someone believes that Jesus is accursed, they will live as though that that is truth. Even though it's false for those who believe Jesus is Lord, they will live as though that's true. That being the truest thing that's ever been said. So they did not live as though that were true. Men's lives tell their story. And they certainly did not have God's Holy Spirit in them because it was demonstrated by cursing his name. The Holy Spirit is not about cursing the name of Christ, misleading people about the name of Christ. He doesn't affirm error concerning Christ. Blasphemies concerning Christ. He doesn't place his hand on idols who mention Christ. And somehow give them credibility in such a way that they are truly joined to Christ. It's why the spiritual gifts must be operative. The ones that ought to be operative. Because our role is to distinguish all that I just said. To make those uh, distinctions. But I would say beware the reckless man. I believe that's what Paul is really teaching us. Beware the reckless man. Beware the reckless church. The man who thinks he can say whatever he wants about Christ Jesus 
and somehow it is just a slip up. God's men do not say things against Christ. Those who belong to Christ do not say things against Christ. Let me really heighten this. Those who truly belong to Christ do not think things against Christ. We think God's thoughts after him. Those who belong to Christ do not perform actions against Christ. And I'm talking about as a perpetual pattern of their life. That's not the mode and course of their life. Those who do sin against Christ and fellow man who belong to him are quick to confess their sins before God, trusting in his absolute perfect righteousness and that they are forgiven according to what 1 John teaches. Nor do those among his people perform actions and say things against Christ. In any case, if they did do or say something against Christ, there would be quick repentance. But no believer ever curses Christ. No believer curses Christ. Because Paul says, if you have God's spirit indwelling you, you cannot curse Christ. I believe that there are certainly some, even the believers here in Corinth to this point, that in some ways they dishonor Christ in the area of practicing the spiritual gifts. But I don't believe that Paul is giving a pass to those who are cursing Christ and saying, you are Christians. He's saying, no, no, no. If you're saying this, you don't have God's spirit. If you're saying Jesus is Lord, that is evident of God's spirit in you. Now, let me instruct you. The one who curses Christ is a pagan who needs to be born again. Even if they are cursing Christ from his pulpit. Paul then said in verse 4 and beyond to explain what the gifts are. For the foundation of them he's already put before us. But then look at what he says. Now there are varieties of gifts. There are different gifts. But the same spirit. And as we work through the distinctions the next time we're together. Here's the one thing you're going to find out. Not every person possesses every gift. And none of us get to fill out checklists and self-evaluation and aptitude tests to figure out which gifts we have and don't have. We don't get to choose them for ourselves. Where am I getting that from? Titus 2, 11 to 15 specifically. You're welcome to note that. But also in everything that the Bible teaches, even to our point as we're relating to the work of the Spirit in Acts, as well as here in Corinthians. That as I've said, and even as we look to Romans, all that we have, God has given us. And so even as you have gifts, and we all do have gifts being in him, even as you have gifts of the Spirit, they are given by the Spirit. And Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, not only of their existence, but their operation. I don't believe people walk around in the body of Christ not knowing, or they should not walk around not knowing what their gifts are. There may need to be an affirmation of what the gift is, but the Christian goes about practicing the gifts as they were given. The practice. So he first establishes, and we'll get to all that I said in the next context, but first he establishes that there are different gifts, but the gifts come from the same spirit. 
I think that's a very important point. And Spirit is certainly capitalized in our English Bibles, but he's referring to the Holy Spirit. I believe that there is a recognition of the gifts, one Christian to another, that there is a sense in which when the gifts are in operation, there's a blessing. And all this is tied to the source of the gifts. So you and I know when we're operating in the gifts of God's spirit, one to another. And there is a certain agreement between us, those of us who are born again in him, when those gifts are operating. And they operate in the context of the Lord's church. I'm not saying that's the only context that those gifts are operative. But I'm saying those gifts are sourced in, embedded in, and given to the Lord's church and people in the church. And then people operate those gifts toward one another, first and primarily. Now, do you know why that that's important? Because so many say that they have gifts, but they never employ them in the life of the church or toward people in the church. People may have gifts that God has given and they're employing them in society at large, primarily and only in society. But they don't use them in the life of the church. And so we make a habit of always telling people, not only do I need you, I need your gifts. I need your gifts because your gifts sharpen me just as my gifts sharpen you. And why? Well, because they were given to us by the Spirit to build one another up. So Paul wanted to go beyond, in verse 4, explaining what they were through and beyond. And the first thing he does when he says that is that there are many. And they are given by the same Spirit. And they are operated by the same Spirit. And I think that the Spirit has done that so that we can recognize. There's a sense of recognition. Because it's not that you're being edified and you don't know that you're being edified. You should know that you're being built up. Or you should know when someone's doing something and saying that it's a gift and that's not a gift. And that's not a person to be acting as though they're operating a gift. So then the gifts are not established, listen to this, ever with sin as their foundation or false teaching as their foundation. They're always established by the spirit of truth for the purpose of truth. And that truth is what builds us up and sanctifies us. As we move through this text and begin to look at the individual gifts, you have to understand that that is the foundation of Paul's proclamation to the Corinthians. That the gifts are established in holiness and soundness, sound teaching and sound practice. So then there are many gifts. There are many gifts and one spirit. And then he says, look at verse 5. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. By that he means variety of services. How the gifts operate. Not simply their existence, but how they function to build each other up. There's a variety of ways in which that takes place. So it's not this robotic, you practice your gift, and there's an expected result, and when we don't achieve that result, we get frustrated with one another. I practice my gift, and then there's this expected result. No, there's a myriad of ways that you can be built up from the practice of one gift. But the intent of that gift is also to serve. It's not serving self, because you'll see further down the line, the gifts are abused when the Corinthians begin to look inward. When they use the gifts to build themselves up. 
And Paul tries to steer them away from that. And they're also given by the same Lord. So our gifts are given by the same Lord who is Lord over all, Lord of his church. And he gives them to each one of us in order to operate those gifts one to another. In the next text that we'll look at next time we're together, Paul identified what the gifts were and how they fit into the unity of the body. So what are the gifts and then how do they fit within the unity of the body and the ministry of the saints? We'll look at that and talk about it next time. Let's pray.